Hi, you're listening to Celluloid Cards Wallop with James and Gemma. Sit down, enjoy yourself, grab a snack, and have some fun. Welcome to the first edition of Celluloid Codswallop. This week we're going to be talking about a fantastic film called The Breakfast Club. So here's the conversation that me and James had about the film. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are. This is a test. And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. Uh, yeah, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me. Cause... Sit down, Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. So the basis of Breakfast Club for anybody who hasn't seen the film is five high school students from different walks of life endure a Saturday detention under a power-hungry principal who is Paul Gleason. The disparted group includes Rebel John, played by Judd Nelson, Princess Claire, who is played by Molly Ringwald, Outcast Allison, who is Ali Sheedy, Brainy Brian, and who is played by Anthony Michael Hall. And of course, there is also Andrew, who is played by Emilio Estefan. Estevez. Estevez. Estefan is a family of singers. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> Turn that beat around. Anyway, so Andrew is the jock. So obviously, mm-hmm. uh, you've got the princess, you've got the outcast, you've got the rebel, you've got the brainiac, and you've also got the jock as well. Mm-hmm. So like it said at the very beginning, it's five different walks of life. Mm-hmm. Each has the chance to tell his or her story, making the others see them a little differently. And when the day ends, the question whether school will ever be the same again. Mm-hmm. And that is it in a nutshell. Thank you for listening. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good night. <laughs> Look at that Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first of all, James, obviously you have probably seen it a few more times than I have. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So... What is your thoughts about this film? Well, an interesting link to it just for this year. The film, if memory serves me, was set on March the 24th. This year, we had a March the 24th on a Saturday. And around the world, there were showings of it in cinemas to commemorate it. And how I originally got into it is the fact that I actually knew it from a from from the, the music, actually, by Simple Minds, uh, a well-known song called Don't You Forget About Me. Yes. That is how I first ever learned about it, because I remember seeing the music video on, uh, it was actually on VH1. 
Okay. I'm probably on things like MTV, back when MTV actually showed music. Back in the olden days. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, this film looks brilliant. But I yeah. had no idea what it was about. I knew the name of Breakfast Club. Yeah, I was going to say, it's actually quite funny because uh, the reason why I got into it was because of uh, the Goldbergs, mm. because of that episode where oh, they actually yeah. did a version of The Breakfast Club. So, uh, you know, I can't actually, I can't argue with the the way you got into it, definitely, mm. because mine is completely out there. So. <laughs> but yours at least gives you an idea of what it is, because I, honest to God, and you will laugh, and probably people listening will laugh, I thought The Breakfast Club book could be some sort of film about students meeting up, eating breakfast. Well, I thought that to begin with. Yeah, I think that that isn't a stupid thought, to be honest, when you have no idea. The story of me seeing it is quite interesting because for a period in the 90s, there was showing on the BBC Two channel in the UK called Out of the 1980s. And on one episode, they got to The Breakfast Club talking about it. And after the programme, they showed the film. And the problem I had is I kept saying to my parents, have you ever seen this film? Do you know anything about it? Nope, nothing, not a clue. And after I'd watched it with them, I was mesmerised and loved it. Um, my dad turned to my mum and went, I think this is about the fifth time we've seen this film. <laughs> so I said, you seen them? What is this film? And they're going, no, not a clue, never seen it. Why do you think that they did that? I think they'd forgotten they'd seen it, if I'm honest. Oh, okay. I thought, because I was thinking, well, it's not exactly risky. No. Yeah. My guess is they'd forgotten, but I basically pushed myself more and more, got it on VHS. Now, that's a real throwback for people. Got it on VHS, got the soundtrack on CD on the cheap somewhere. I then ended up getting it on DVD about three times. Then I got two special editions of it on DVD. Then I got two special editions of it on (laughs) Blu-ray. And also, just to point out as well, in the days when James got it on soundtrack as well, it wasn't an MP3 and it wasn't a CD. It would have been a tape at that point, wouldn't it? No, not at that point. Oh, was it not? Okay. I got it as a CD because... um, Ah, okay. Sorry, then I apologise. I would have. I, I was far, far too young to see it when it originally came out. Ah, uh, okay. And really, it was quite a hard thing to track down when I was looking for it as a you know getting to my late teens when I became aware of it. So, what's the big push on this film? Why do people like it? Well, as uh, as Gemma said, it it looks at five different students with complete different backgrounds, but they're all sharing this one thing that they're in detention, and the whole experience to them is what goes on throughout the day, the different reasons why they're in detention. Some of them are real legitimate reasons, like one of them is in trouble for attacking somebody. I don't want to give too much away, but one person's in trouble for attacking somebody. I think it's, I don't think we need to worry about spoilers at this point. I think we can be open and honest. Okay. Yeah, so if anybody hasn't watched this film, then I apologise, but there will be spoilers on this episode, because if you are like me and you haven't watched this film, then... We're not going to ruin anything necessarily that, you know, you're still going to want to watch this film. And I highly recommend you do watch this film. So, sorry, James, carry on and you carry on with your spoilers. So John Bendu's played by Judd Nelson, just a complete head the ball, seems to constantly be in detention. Um, Claire has got him because she's tried to be a smart-ass and skip class (laughs) to go shopping because she's obviously from a very nice wealthy background. Andrew is in detention because he's one of the headlight wrestlers and he's taped Larry Lester's buns together. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. (laughs) 
Brian, who is the nerd of the group, has been unable to handle the fact that he has failed at shop class and has let off a flare. <laughs> so Alison is basically just weird outcast bonkers, or so we think, and needs to do something with the time. But that isn't how we initially meet these people. We know very little about them. They're all in detention. They're all bonkers. They're all being basically kept in place by um, Richard Vernon, who's the principal. Yep. And he sets them a task. They have to write an essay of a thousand words discussing who they are, which with teenagers is an absolutely brilliant thing to do because generally you're a teenager. You don't really know who you are. You have no idea of your personality, do you? You're not a formed human being. No, absolutely not. And to be honest, even at the age of 35, I couldn't tell you who I am right now. I couldn't write a thousand words on who I am right now. I think I could, but it'd probably scare people. <laughs> <laughs> we won't dive into that. <laughs> that's, just... that's, that's one for the next one when I'm lying on a couch and Gemma's going, so tell me about your childhood. <laughs> haven't watched it only recently i can see why people loved this film so much back in the day and up until the present day as well and it's also one of those films that holds up mm. as well so um the director of this film is john hughes mm -hmm. and he does an amazing job directing this film yeah. to the point that obviously the fashion is of the 80s but that is the only thing really that is of the 80s and yeah, the fact that you get to know the characters initially and, you know, they're not allowed to speak to one another. But of course, as naturally kids do, they automatically speak. And uh, I quite liked when um, John, he he broke the door, didn't he? So they had to keep it open. But the question about the screw. Screws fall out all the time. It's an imperfect place. Yeah. Uh, sorry, apologies. It was because they uh, had to keep the door open, so he took the screws out, didn't he? So they could close it, yeah. So I think that was quite uh, quite funny, and you could almost imagine that he'd done that many a time before. Give me that screw. I don't have it. You want me to yank you out of that seat and shake it out of you? I don't have it. Screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. Give it to me, Bender. I mean, John is, uh, John Bender, the character there, is simply just somebody who's always in detention. Yeah. But to go back to something you said that's interesting, I mean, this was a film made by John Hughes, who made some absolutely stunning films, the director, and produced some amazing films. But the beauty of it is, is that it's all pretty much in one location, which is the library in the school. It doesn't particularly go anywhere else from that. You see a couple of other areas of the school, but it centers on all these people in one room, and that really magnifies the performance of the, of the cast, because you're spending a predominant amount of time on the students. It might go off to, say, uh, the principal, or it might go off to Carl the janitor. Um, yeah. Or the hallway for a bit yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Or, say, the sports hall. But that's it. It might go to Vernon's office for a bit, but that's pretty much it. And it really does focus on these people. And they, they do start out as complete strangers to each other. They all start out fronting an image which as a teenager you can really relate to, and as an adult you can relate to as well, start fronting an image to each other of who they are. Yeah. Over time, they begin to open up to one another. And I think where this film really speaks to people is that they, when they open up, you see all their insecurities, all the concerns, all the problems they're having. So, for example, you look at John and you learn that he has this incredibly chaotic and violent home life yeah. where he is constantly abused both physically and mentally 
by his father, and it again shows you why he acts the way he does. In the case of Brian, he can't handle the idea. Brian, when you look at him, you will see him as having it pretty good. He's smart, he's intelligent, he'll go places. The yeah. problem he has is that he cannot handle failure in any in any form. I think it is also with Brian as well is the fact that he isn't allowed. Yes, to, he is. Yeah, because yeah. he's got an awful lot of pressure from his his mum and you know, yeah. like possibly father. I don't think we ever saw a father figure. So, no. but he he's got a lot of pressure from his family to be the perfect A student, and mm. uh, and then of course he went to shop class. He got. You know, was it an F he got or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, like, like we said at the very beginning, he didn't cope well with that (laughs) because he'd never got one before. But he also was almost like a form of shame that he didn't want to go home and show his parents that he'd got an F on something. You know? Yeah, because he couldn't handle the fact that he created a a line from an elephant, you know, an elephant lamp, where you pulled something in in the uh, in the trunk and it lit up, and he could not handle the fact that it wouldn't light up and work. And again, you're seeing the same sort of pressure in the character of Andrew Clark, because Andrew, who's played by Milo Estevez, is the jock, he's the winner at sports, and the pressure on him is the fact that whatever he does, his father isn't happy with him. Mm. I remember one of the lines where he says, like, your intentions mean shit, basically. You know, his father, he discusses how his father berates him. And, uh, and again, in a way, almost trying to show his father what a big tough guy he is. He bullies Larry Lester uh, and gets in trouble for doing that. So again, it's under another issue where things will not work out for them. And then the flip side to the fact is the person who is the ultimate perfect person who thinks of this great life. And it's Claire. Yeah. Who supposedly thinks of this great life. She is the personification of, well, she's what would become a yuppie. You know, she's, she sits eating sushi, which the time was an uncommon thing, which shocks Trippetter Ribdale sat there, including Andrew Clark, who eats one of the biggest lunches you'll ever see. <laughs> and the promise is that she feels neglected by her parents, who she thinks going to get divorced. And the hassle she's given is the fact from John and other people, the idea that she can't relate to anybody. Everything's fine and perfect for her, when it's completely the opposite of that. Yeah. She, she has a rather dysfunctional home life. I think I've got that right, haven't I? Her parents. Yep, you have. Probably yeah, going to get have. divorced. She wants to live with her sister who's in Paris, I think. There are major problems there. And then you come to the ultimate head of the ball, who is Alison. But Alison's problem is the fact that simply she has a family life which is almost non-existent. They don't recognise the fact she's even not in the house. She's been dropped off to detention. So you ask yourself the question, well, why is she in detention? Everybody else is there for a reason. The saddest thing is she's in detention simply because she has nothing to do. Yeah. And I suspect she wants to be around other people, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's like a beautiful scene, in a way, where Claire actually gives Alison a makeover. <laughs> so it's only really simple, like a little bit of makeup and like pulls her hair back sort of thing. But it's just the fact that this is almost like the first time that she's kind of been noticed isn't it and it's the first time that she's ever been you know like even treated like a female you know Hmm. i think it's the fact that it's the first time anyone's shown an interest in her yeah yeah (laughs) the humorous point that i've and you can tell me if you agree or disagree on this but every person i've ever seen the film with think she looks better in her strange goth style. Yeah, goth actually. style than she does when they actually give her a makeup. She's more attractive as a goth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I fully agree with that. 
it's probably because she probably felt awkward and looked mm-hmm. awkward as the dressed up person. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. The goth look is, uh, the rock and roll look. <laughs> mm. The other thing that's interesting is obviously the film focuses on the teenagers in the, the library. And what it then does is it gives you the perspective of, of adults. So you have, the principal, played by Paul Gleason, yep. has lines that I still repeat with my friends, like, you mess the bull, young man, you're going to get the horns. Yeah, and then he gives the ultimate metal salute, doesn't he? But obviously he's doing the does. bull horns. Yeah, that is such an iconic scene, isn't it? Well, the film itself came up with a lot of iconic lines because we got Eat My Shot from uh, John Bender before we ever got it from Bart Simpson. Yeah, because I was thinking that, because obviously being um, being a person who watched it not at the time you mm. know watched it nowadays mm. i was thinking was that from bart simpson but it can't have been because it no. was before that so yeah mm-hmm. i was wondering so thank you for clearing that up because i was wondering where uh where that came from so well the bender thing also links into another thing about groening's creation which is futurama because that's where the robot bender got his name from mm. Okay. Mm, See, I have all this trivia. Yes, this is very interesting. So you have Richard Vernon, the principal, who Mm -hmm. is constantly at war with uh, John Bender, and then you have Carl the janitor. Now, the interesting thing is, if you watch closely the start of the film, you see various different areas of the school. It goes past the the lockers. It goes past different names, one of which is Miss Hachimoto, who is, in fact, a producer, I think, on the film. But it also passes a list of students of the year. And one of the students of the year is Carl. So at some point, Carl has been at the school. He's been like the man of the year. He's been like probably the all-star athlete. And he's become the janitor. The interesting idea about this is everyone sort of looks down on Carl because Carl is a janitor. So within the hierarchy of work and the hierarchy and faculty of school, he's not seen as much. The kids don't think much of him. And the principal doesn't desperately think much of him. But, as Carl says, on the eyes and ears of this school, he knows everything that's going on, and he's clearly come from a position of being the guy to becoming the janitor there. It's kind of like this whole film has the whole saying of don't judge a book by its cover. Correct. It, doesn't it? Correct. So, because every single person, maybe the principal is the exception there, but every single person is kind of like completely different inside to what they're acting like. On the outside. I actually would say the principle is different because Vernon puts this front of authority on. And when you see him actually sitting and talking to Carl, you realise that he's just pretty bewildered and terrified and confused by things as sort of anybody could be because he keeps saying that he's got his concerns that he feels he thinks he has respect, but he doesn't. And he also has the concern that they're going to be the people looking after him. And I think that's why he puts on this front of the ears. But obviously, what he does do with John, <clears throat> John sacrifices himself so no one else gets caught and they go for a run around the school. And he goes, he gets basically put in like detention sort of thing again. Second detention in the cupboard <laughs> by the principal. Who, and what well, the principal's doing is sort of saying to basically John, you know, you're an arsehole, you're a waste of time. And he gives him the ability to take a swing at him. And of course, Bender won't do it. And he's saying to him, ah, basically, because he makes to like punch him. He's going, ah, you chicken shit, you're a coward. Sort of goading him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And basically, so you've seen this present, presentation of all these people. John re- you know, manages to escape, does the old famous climbing through the air duct stuff, telling the legendary story about a woman going into a, uh, a bar with a poodle under one arm. 
foot long salami they unrevealed the <laughs> and I'm afraid to say and then he falls through the roof and he can't have a joke the thing that I'm going to have to ruin for people is there is no conclusion to this joke it has no end <laughs> this, is, this has been proven there is no punchline I'm very sorry no no but not you, at all <laughs> but you filthy beasts will probably come up with one yourself so yeah so we've hit this point and to me you come to this point in the film and this is the crux of the film to me they sit down and they bear their souls to each other. They discuss yeah. all the things you mentioned earlier about why they're in detention, what's got wrong in life for them, what their concerns are. And they hit on the point, it ties into the theme song as well. They've all been brought together by this detention. They are people who would probably have nothing to do with each other in any other circumstance. Absolutely Will they not, stay no. friends? Will they be able to build upon friendships? And Claire was the only one who actually said no. Yeah, she doesn't believe they'll do it. Alison is, Alison is rather cruelly treated, to be fair, by uh, John, even though they they have feelings for each other, because he breaks her down to her saying, you will never. Do you mean Claire? Because you said Uh, Alison. Did I say Claire? Sorry. Yeah. I know, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, Alison was rather, hang on. Claire. (laughs) Alice, Alison. So Alison admits to them. <laughs> Do you really want to speak about Alison though? Because I'm, no, I'm not sure. I, I'm getting there. No, I, okay. I, 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 my brain's working. Don't worry. So <laughs> okay. Alison admits to them that they that there's a very high chance they won't be friends with each other. She doesn't think it'll happen. Mm-hmm. But and the problem with uh, oh like oh crap, hang on. Oh, does Claire? No. Ah, ooh, ooh, ah. Right, Claire. Uh, yeah, Claire. Basically, uh, sorry, I'll take over for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just man Stafford losing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. So yeah, so the in the scene, basically Claire is the only person who is honest enough really to say that they wouldn't keep in contact with each other. Her and John are kind of goading off each other at this point, aren't they? They're yeah, just, yeah. There's been a bit of an interest between them. They've kind of like cracked John's shell, but, and they've smoked dope together, so well, uh, they've all got high together, which has probably helped the situation somewhat. Yeah. But I think also that during that scene, actually, I felt, I actually felt sorry for Claire. Yeah. Because it was the fact that she actually opened up and she said what her life was like and how she was feeling and everything like that. And then they all kind of like just said, oh, you know, stop being such a princess, you know, and stop being this, stop being that. But it, it wasn't, in some ways, it I felt terrible for her because mm. she wasn't able to have those feelings. It was almost like that's how she is at home. She's not allowed to have those feelings. And even mm. when she was honest in the group, she wasn't allowed to have those feelings. So I felt sorry for her at that point. That's true, because when she opened up and he's really only on people, John really rips her to shreds, doesn't he? He goes he after does. her. Yeah, and I'm I was never completely sure why he did that. Other than I mean, the only thing I can think is maybe it's an incredibly bad way of showing he's attracted to her, or he wants to try. I don't know whether or whether is it the fact that he does he feel he's weakened himself by opening up to her a bit. It's a strange one. I can't. I can never quite work out why he went after her so much. Or it might just be the fact that he's so. I was gonna say self indulgent, but it kind of it, it kind of means that that he was feeling pity for himself. Yes. Uh, he was comparing mm. what she was going through to how terrible his life is, which obviously it was terrible, mm. but at the same time, not allowing for the fact that everybody's life is terrible. 
You know, I mean, it's everybody's situation that they're going through at the time is terrible for that individual person. So, you know, I might be going through something and, and you'd be like, oh, that's something and nothing. Mm. Um, but to me, it's it's massive. Yeah, and that probably is what it is, actually, because he might be thinking, well, my situation far worse than your situation. Yeah. What do you have to complain about? Yeah, that actually makes more sense. My God, it's taken... <laughs> I've never thought of that one before. Thank you, Gemma. No um, worries. <laughs> it's what but I'm you're here right. for. <laughs> yeah, it is that. I suspect you're right that he's probably thought, well, look, lady, you know, you think you've got it bad? I'm ten times worse. But they all do sort of admit they've all got problems. And in that instance, what I love about that scene is they hit on something that's an adult now really, really resonates, which is the fact when uh, Alison says, it, talk about life, he says, it's a natural thing. When you get older, your heart dies. Yeah. Now, a problem I find watching that film that as an adult is that I can see where they're coming from in that one. Yeah, this momentous change. I'm probably getting ahead of myself on what I'm saying now, but something I find difficult as an adult watching that film now is you find yourself really longing for when you're a teenager and probably the things you didn't appreciate enough as a teenager as being these great things that were were happening and were available to you, coupled with the things that were difficult when you were a teenager. I don't think I would personally want to go back and be a teenager again. I didn't have an overly fantastic teenage years, so, mm. yeah. So, I mean, personal preference, mm. that would be, no. I, yes, there were some good times. Of course <clears> there were. There, not just some, there were lots. But at the same time, because of the bad ones, I probably wouldn't want to go backwards, so, yeah. I think it's also the fact that when you look at, Personally, when you look at the Breakfast Club, you're thinking, damn, wish my teenage years had been like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so the horrible thing, obviously, they bared the souls to each other, and <laughs> they all know you get the infamous changing of people's appearance and makeup and stuff. And let's see if I get this right. John goes off with Claire. Yeah. And Alison goes off with Andrew, leaving poor old Brian the Brain stuck on his own. Now, yeah. at this point, it's occurred to them all they still have to write this southern word essay, and they sort of blackmail Brian into writing because he'll be the best at it. Yeah, which again was another thing that was very unfair, but mm. also very teenage-like. And very realistic, now, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he writes this, their detention finishes, because I think they're from the fact it's 7.30 in the morning to... Three in the afternoon, I think. Yeah. Something or five. like that. Yeah. It was all day. Anyway, it was yeah. literally all day. So it was like yeah. a school it was like a school day, but on a Saturday, wasn't it? So So a brilliant thing is that they ask the brain, Brian, to write a well, it's supposed to be a thousand word essay about who they are, but he actually writes something different. He writes a letter to Vern, which goes something like well, it goes exactly like this. It says Dear Mr Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it is we did wrong. But we think you're crazy for making us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us in the simplest terms and the most convenient definition. But what we find out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Now that within the film is probably one of the most iconic sort of scenes you will see in a film because each person describing the brain, um, the athlete, etc. is that character saying that word. And you have them all going out and, you know, they're saying goodbye to Carl the janitor. In the case of John, he's going to be there for another two months anyway because he's just kept racking up detentions. 
yeah. <laughs> by pissing off Vernon. Uh, and you see them all saying goodbye to each other. And while this is happening, they're all saying goodbye and walking off or whatever. You get Claire kissing John goodbye and giving him an earring, which God knows which fella is going to make him a diamond earring on him, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but who cares at this point, eh? Yeah. He's in they've love. All, so. yeah, they're in love. They've all bonded. And it cuts when they're saying, since you go to the breakfast club, you see John put his earring in, he goes for a walk across the field. Yeah. American football field. And he goes into the iconic pose, holding his arm up, silhouetted. Fist bump to the air, isn't it, basically? And it then cuts to the wonderful Simple Minds music, which has gone through the film. It's an exceptional song to an exceptional film. And it encapsulates to me, again, something I said earlier, I think the appeal is it's what you would want your teenage years to be. Yeah. And the amazing thing is it doesn't limit itself to the 80s because I, again, I'll, I'll give you, if you know, if you will indulge me, a thing of, a big, big thing on my bucket list was seeing this in a cinema because I was never of an age to see it. And they showed it at the Odeon on one of these flashback things and it was great. It was a proper digital print. The sound and pitch quality was so good that you could hear scenes of planes going over and cars in the background on the film. What really interested me was I looked around the other people in the cinema with me, thinking it'd be people of my age or older. There were loads of teenagers in there. It transcends when it was yeah. made. It transcends age group. That's just a phenomenal thing about it. Yeah, it's a bit like I said at the beginning, wasn't it? The you know the fact that this film just stands up. If you had the ability to change the outfits of the cast, <laughs> then that is the only thing that really symbolises the eighties in this film because it is such a well-made film mm-hmm. and yeah i think uh, well i think it's a fantastic film well personally speaking i don't think we can we can say any more about it really because it's been covered so <laughs> i don't think it can ever be remade i hope not i know they've looked at doing play stage plays of it which i think could work because it's all yeah. pretty much one location yeah, I mean, in some ways, I suppose it has been remade in the sense that, you know, like I, I mentioned the fact that the Goldbergs was the reason why I, I watched it. But then they did that ironically, didn't they? It's a homage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they also did it because, you know, like, it's it's all flashbacks of his real life, isn't yes, it? Goldbergs, yes, yes. So. As, as, as we learned from the Goldbergs, as cool as John looks, that's a lot of layers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the coat gang. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I did, when I had longer hair, I did once dress up like Bender, and it is quite warm. It yeah. is quite a warming process. But the other thing that ties in something Gemma and I both have in common, other than being these fabulous hosts that we are, <laughs> is the fact that we're, fans of, we're, we're big, big fans of Kevin Smith. And Kevin yeah. Smith worships the altar of John Hughes. He re- references in, I think, think is it dogma he references the fact that they tried to go to uh sherwood illinois where the film uh, the universe because everything that uh, was created by is it sherman or sherwood terrible i should know but all the films that john hughes made are all set in this fictitious universe (laughs) and jane silent bob try and go and find it (laughs) <laughs> and are rather upset to find out. Oh, it's Sher- not a real... Sherman, Illinois. Sherman, I think. Yeah. So they're yeah. very upset to find out it's not a real place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember that now, and it was definitely dogma. Where it's supposed to be set is obviously a fictitious place. They get upset because they can't find it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I read a book actually on John Hughes, and it was quite amazing. He had such a sort of an eclectic uh, youth and was basically so affected by things that happened to him as a teenager and the way things were 
that he actually still could tap into the, the zeitgeist and the, 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 the thoughts of teenagers perfect. Yeah. And he seemed to get it perfectly set on. It was quite amazing the way he did it. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go, something that I haven't done for a little while is a, a game. And, of course, we've just done The Breakfast Club. So, this is a, a game about breakfast. <laughs> but, specifically, it about cereal and the slogans from different cereal adverts. I'm going to give you the slogan, mm -hmm. and then you have to uh, tell me what the cereal is. Okay? Okay. Okay, so the first one, The Breakfast of Champions. Wheated. Yay! Oh, you seem to be good at this. Only <laughs> <laughs> one, but <laughs> well, one's better than none so far. So yeah, Great. it's good. Okay, uh, snap, crackle, and pop. That's Rice Krispies. Rice Krispies, yeah. Okay, the next one is he likes it, Mikey. Oh God, Mikey. Um... Max? No. This one is Life Cereal. Uh, that sounds like, like an old person cereal to me, but anyway. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? The longest running catchphrase, uh, catchphrase for a cereal ad belongs to Life, who introduced the slogan in 1972. Wow. The young boys in the original ad used the phrase, I'm not going to try it. You try it. Let's get Mikey. He hates everything. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Ten years before I was born, this strange advert was on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mikey would reprise his role for the cereal brand later as a young adult. That's cool. That I like okay. that. That is cool. I love continuing out continuation stuff like that. Yeah, me too. They're magically delicious. Let me think. I can visualise it. It is Lucky Charms. Yeah. Two out of three ain't bad. Sorry. Apologies. Three out of four ain't bad. They're, oh, they're always after me. Lucky Charms. <laughs> okay. I'm Cuckoo. For Cocoa. Oh, God. Cocoa Puffs? Yep. Yeah. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Yeah. So happy together. <laughs> That's a song. Yeah. Nope. Um, I can't think of the band. Is that the Monkeys? It doesn't matter what the band is. So we're talking nope. about cereal. Uh, I have no idea on that, I'm afraid. Golden Grahams. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. With a musical rendition of So Happy Together for the Golden Graham... Oh, sorry. What am I saying? I'm American all of a sudden. The Golden Graham Cracker cereal in the 80s. Their ads featured people enjoying Golden Grahams together in groups with the reworked version of the song playing in the background. Catchy. Mm, because as we all know, we do all sit around, not at breakfast, oh no, with your family. No, we just sit around in weird groups eating cereal, because that's the way you do it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Silly rabbit. Tricks. Yay! <laughs> just tricks of a kid. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't say the next bit because of that reason, so, okay. They're great. 
That's Frosties. Frosted Flakes, but yeah, I'll give you Frosties. Uh, Tony the Tiger. Tony the Tiger. Originally Sugar Frosted Flakes in the 19- in 1952, Tony the Tiger is an OG when it comes to the Frosted Corn Flakes, with most of the ads revolving around the energetic tiger. Although it's the most famous ad line, it was originally, they're not good, they're great. To start, they bring out the tiger in you. So that's what it used to be completely. Mm. And the taste adults have grown to love are other popular lines from toast. <laughs> Where your teeth drop out to the sugar content. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the taste you can see. The taste you can see. Hmm. The taste you can see. What kind of cereal could be visual? I'm going to have to pass on that, I'm afraid. I can't think of anything. Okay. Um, that one is Cinnamon Toast Crunch. No, I've never even heard of that one. No, I think that might be an American one, to be honest. Mm. Although first produced in 1950. So they all seem to be started wow. in 1950, yeah. don't they? That'll probably be more the fact there was a push. They're looking for sort of cheaper, basically more ready, you know, easily available ready foods after the war. Yeah, yeah, probably. You're probably right there. And also, it's something that you could ration as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, a lot easier. The cinnamon-flavoured cereal it didn't bring its own animated bakers until 1986. Mm. The three aproned amigos never spoke a word that wasn't the cereal's brand name until 1995, when they started using the taste you can see. Mm. So there you go. Interesting. Follow my nose, it always knows. Follow my nose, it always knows. Nope. Sorry, nope. pass. That one's Fruit Loops. Speaking of which, I'm going to run a radio program called Fruit Loops in the near future. You are, yeah. You plugged that on the last episode. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and in return, I will plug us. That's <laughs> when Jerry keeps going, why do you keep randomly shouting Codswallop? <laughs> no, I'll give you the proper information and then you can do it. Next one, gotta have my pops. God, it sounds like a drugs thing. <laughs> it does, um, it isn't though. It's cereal. <laughs> gotta have my pops. Um, ricicles? Kellogg's Corn Pops. I don't know, I've never heard of that, sorry. Okay. No, no, that's fine. I mean, you won't get, like, it wasn't necessarily going to get all of them anyway. It'd be damn impressive if I had that one. It would have, it would have. So back in uh, 1951, with the phrase, sugar pops are tops, sugar corn pops in 1978, the cereal picked up its catchy slogan, Gotta Have My Pops, in 1988. Wow. In the late 90s, they ran a popular commercial featuring two stickler parents watching their out-of-control adolescence scoffing, well, it's a scarfing, but I think they mean scoffing, mm-hmm. down his pops using the same slug line, that kid was Aaron Paul before he broke bad. Oh, break it. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was something like, I'm pretty sure Keanu Reeves died on a conflict on the yeah, yeah, I think he did. And Matt LeBlanc did uh, tomato sauce, I believe, as well. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is where I failed in life. I need to die early. <laughs> Very early. Uh, do, do, do. Um, I'm going to do one more. 
Okie doke. Okay. It's a honey of an O. Honey O's? Pass. Honey O's? No. Nope. Sugar fluff? No. Nope. Honey nut Cheerios. Bastard. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to read this one, uh, the Honey mm-hmm. Nut Cheerios one, but uh, let's hear what Hulk Hogan has to say. no way a little like you is going to change my ways. It's time you were tempted with a taste of nuts and honey. Hulk Hogan doesn't eat nuts and honey. Did you take this? An unbeatable part of this nutritious breakfast. Okay, so that's that. <laughs> oh, I just don't go. I was scrolling to close it, and then um, I very quickly saw Hulk Hogan. And I, I love it. I, I love it. That. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, this is the first episode of Celluloid Codswallop. Oh, I'm getting it. Yay! In my opinion, that's a wrap. 